If you're like me, and a type A overachiever, you probably spend a lot of your time looking ahead, solving the next problem, pursuing the next opportunity, planning for tomorrow. But in this, our first Father's Day episode of Datages, I invite you to join me and take a look back. You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Happy Father's Day, friends and family. Whether you are a father or have a father, I think that covers most of us, we invite you to take a few minutes listening to this episode of Datages and looking back with us. Today's Datage is this. High achievers and entrepreneurs are wired to look ahead, but sometimes it is just as important to look back. But before we talk about looking back, let's first today talk about the future and the present. As I said, those of us that are pioneering entrepreneurs are wired to look ahead. For me, I believe one of my greatest skills is to be able to see the world in patterns and see the future unfolding as a set of dots being connected, leading down several potential paths. I'm not talking about some sort of far-out Marvel multiverse concept. I'm really just talking about a type of vision that comes from a combination of analytics and intuition. It helps me see patterns make decisions, and have some sense of possible outcomes. Am I always right? No way. But I'm very often close. However, it's important to note that this instinctive insight and intuition can't come about without significant past experience from which to draw. Whether or not you are consciously thinking about a particular past experience in making a future decision all of your past experiences and memories are always forming your forward-looking judgment. If you want to understand and evaluate your own intuitive skills, you have to have an awareness of your own past experiences to know how they are shaping your perception and your intuition. So what about being present, living in the here and now? There's so much messaging in our culture today about living in the moment. In fact, that's an awesome song if you don't know it. Live in the Moment by the band Portugal and the Man from Alaska. We'll put a link in the bulletin board. Check it out if you haven't heard it. This song is reflective of a general cultural and social viewpoint that we should all be living in the moment, seizing the day, making the most of right now, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Some of this perspective comes from our culture of instantaneous information. With a never-ending flow of information available to us, and with instant gratification becoming the new norm, There's so much to consume right here and right now. Why should we even bother with what has come before or what is happening in the future? Our minds can be fully saturated with a free flow of real-time information. 
but this is not a new idea or a trending topic, nor are we proposing to start a TikTok live in the moment challenge. The idea of living in the moment has been around for centuries. If you've been following Datages for a while now, you know that I enjoy Buddhist philosophy and apply aspects of it in my own life. Buddha himself said, do not dwell on the past. Do not dream of the future. Concentrate the mind on the present moment. If you've been paying really close attention, you also know that I've practiced yoga for over 15 years. Patanjali, who was a sage in India over 2,000 years ago and wrote the Yoga Sutras as a way of compiling already existing teachings into a format that was easier to follow and understand, he's known as the father of yoga. He wrote, Yoga takes you into the present moment, the only place where life exists. But here's the irony. We are looking back thousands of years to gain perspective on the importance of living in the present. Clearly, learning to live in the present and appreciate it requires a study of our collective past and the ability to access the wisdom of those who have come before us. Let's get really philosophical on this topic now. In high school, I was introduced by a particularly scholarly and eccentric English teacher, Ronald Vierling, to a philosopher, author, and erudite speaker, Joseph Campbell, through the study of his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which occupied nearly a full semester of our English class. Joseph Campbell spent much of his career in study of mythology and its unifying nature. He found common elements in mythology across cultures and explained how mythology helped to convey universal human knowledge around the world and across human history. And Campbell, in turn, looked back to his predecessors in the realms of psychology and philosophy to guide him in his studies and writings. In particular, he leaned on the work of Carl Jung and his concept of the collective unconscious. Campbell described it in this way. The term collective unconscious, or general unconscious, is used in recognition of the fact that there is a common humanity built into our nervous system, out of which our imagination works. And it doesn't stop there. Campbell was also heavily influenced by philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who wrote the following. The experiences and illuminations of childhood and early youth become in later life the types, standards, and patterns of all subsequent knowledge and experience, or as it were, the categories according to which all later things are classified. Not always consciously, however. And so it is that in our childhood years the foundation is laid of our later view of the world, and therewith as well of its superficiality or depth. It will be in later years unfolded and fulfilled, not essentially changed. I find it irrefutable that our past experience shapes our present view of the world and the decisions we make, thereby forming our future. We can't make a choice in our lives that avoids this truth. I've shared with you in the past the theme of one of my favorite movies, Magnolia. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. This is truly an inescapable notion. This is why I think it is so fundamentally important to look back at our past and understand it. So how do we take time to look back? Perhaps the most common way is through therapy. 
A lot of time spent with a therapist is spent looking back at past experiences, particularly with your family of origin, bringing those experiences to the front of the intellectual mind and examining them to understand the experiences and the impact that they have on your development. Another easy way to revisit the past is by reconnecting with family and friends who participated in common experiences and reliving those experiences together. Are your memories of the experiences the same? Or are there different perspectives from different individuals of the same series of events? Try this, and you might be surprised how differently your friends, parents, or siblings might have experienced the exact same events that you remember completely differently. Mementos are great too. Did you ever keep a diary? Did you write correspondence with a friend or a loved one? Did you take a bunch of pictures? Do you have souvenirs from a great trip or memorabilia from your old high school? Each of these pathways to revisiting past experiences depends upon you having done something in the past in order to give you access to these tools today. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Speaking of Memento, have you seen the movie from the year 2000? We put a link in the bulletin board. Hard to believe this Christopher Nolan masterpiece is nearly a quarter of a century old now. Talk about looking back to the past. And that's what the movie's all about. Without including any spoilers here, I can share that Guy Pierce plays a desperate man wrapped up in a complex murder mystery, and he has no memory, even short-term, and no ability to form new memories. The movie is shot in reverse chronological order to let the audience experience his madness and frustration as he tries to hold on to the past moment by moment, trying to solve a complex mystery surrounding the murder of the woman he loved. It's such an amazing illustration of how lost we truly are without our past. And in a way, Memento captures the challenges we all face when looking to the past. While I've shared some ways to look back that seem simple at face value, it's really not that easy. Part of the challenge is rooted in the fact that human memory is both subjective and fallible. Remember a minute ago when we were talking about how differently your friends and family might remember the same events you experienced together? In most cases, the subjectivity of memory is not intentional or malicious. It's simply a matter of biology and psychology. But that doesn't mean the involuntary subjectivity of memory is not without terrible consequences. Consider the impact of human memory upon the law. It's not uncommon for trials to be based heavily upon witness testimony. Many times, even capital cases that could have massive consequences for a defendant, perhaps even carrying the death penalty, hinge on the testimony of an eyewitness. The medical journal, Memory, appropriately named, tackled these issues in an article that they published in 2015 by Mark Howe and Lauren Knott. The authors had this to say, when memory serves as evidence, as it does in many civil and criminal legal proceedings, there are a number of important limitations to the veracity of that evidence. This is because memory does not provide a veridical, which means truthful, memory does not provide a veridical representation of events as experienced. Rather, what gets encoded into memory is determined by what a person has already stored in memory, their expectations, needs, and emotional state. This information is subsequently integrated with other information that has already been stored in a person's long-term autobiographical memory. What gets retrieved later from that memory 
is determined by that same multitude of factors that contributed to encoding. Moreover, what we remember is constructed from whatever remains in memory following any forgetting or interference from new experiences. Memory is, by definition, fallible at best and unreliable at worst. I don't know about you, but I don't think I ever want to go to trial based upon testimony derived from human memory. That is a frightening prospect. And things get worse. Sometimes human memories are intentionally distorted as a means to an end. Probably the most familiar and identifiable examples of this phenomenon are propaganda and revisionist history. History is critical. Spanish-American writer and philosopher George Santayana is usually credited with a saying from the early 20th century. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I think we have all come to accept this as a truism. However, juxtapose that with a quote often attributed to Winston Churchill. History is written by victors. If the history we all know and accept as the truth is just one version of the facts that is passed along by those who win wars and those who win the battle of the printing press, then how can we hope to know what really happened and avoid the mistakes that might have led to some of the most catastrophic events in history? Indeed, some of those most catastrophic events are being written out of history altogether, and we are watching it happen in real time. Consider the Holocaust. I recently had the pleasure of visiting the Poland Museum of the History of Polish Jews. The guide at the museum in Warsaw, whose name I will not mention to protect their identity and their job, shared with us that they are no longer allowed to tell the real history of the Holocaust in Poland while giving museum tours to Polish schoolchildren. The version of the history that is permitted by the new right-wing government of Poland requires that they tell the story of the Polish citizens serving as the heroes of the Holocaust and the saviors of the Jews, crusading only to protect them against the Nazis. The real history of Jews in Poland is far more complex. There was latent anti-Semitism in Poland at the time of World War II, and the Nazis capitalized on this to help wield influence over the conquered Polish populace. While there were certainly heroes and resistance fighters in Poland, the unfortunate reality is that many Polish citizens were equally complicit in the Holocaust. At the current pace of information manipulation in our society, who knows how the history will be taught to the next generation. For that matter, if computers start to write human history employing artificial intelligence, what happens then? While thoughts like this are frightening, the malleability of human memories is not always a bad thing. Consider a traumatic experience, for instance, or even a less significant negative event in your life. A piece of advice I often offer is this. You only live an event once. You get to tell the story a thousand times after that. So which is more important, the actual event or the way you tell the story? Obviously, it's the way you tell yourself and others the story that is far more important than the event itself. This form of internal revisionist history can be a pretty powerful tool when used intentionally as a means of positive reinforcement and cultivation of your own self-image. If you tell a story to yourself in positive terms, with a positive outcome, 
and you share it with others in the same way, over time that becomes your reality. Let's now talk about some actionable tools we can utilize in the present tense to counteract the challenges of relying solely upon human memories. First, let's talk about it in a business context. My dad says all the time when it comes to business, if it's not in writing, it never happened. There's a lot to be said for this perspective. Here are some good pointers for a professional setting. One, when you talk to someone, follow up a phone call with an email. Two, take notes when you're on an important call. Three, it's even better if you record notes from a call or a discussion as a memo to file and sign it and date it. This makes those notes more admissible and incontrovertible in the event of any kind of legal proceeding. Four, if permitted by law, record conversations and produce a transcript. State laws vary greatly on this point, so make sure you're aware of the laws in your state and in the state of the person with whom you are speaking before you record any conversation. Number five, in sensitive matters, have someone else present for a discussion. Having an account from a third party reduces the risk of getting something wrong and again makes any record you have of a discussion far more irrefutable. This is particularly recommended in sensitive HR matters for other reasons associated with liability and exposure to employee claims. Those are good tools for a work environment, but I doubt you're recording conversations or making memos to file at your birthday party or on your family vacation. So how can we be better masters of our own memory in all aspects of life? Well, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. I'm a very visual person, and I think the majority of memories are stored as pictures. In composing this episode, I spent some time searching back in my memory to find what was my earliest memory, what had stuck with me for the longest time, and I'm pretty certain it is something bold, visual, and vibrant. Superman. I have distinct memories of the first Superman movie with Christopher Reeve. Blue and red and yellow and larger than life. I went back to see when the movie came out and to see how old I was when my parents took me into that movie theater. Superman was released in December of 1978. I would have been about two and a half years old when I saw it. Now, I'm sure I saw it a hundred more times on HBO growing up, which allows me to put the memories I have from age two into more context, but I know the memory is original from the first time I saw the movie, two and a half years old. When I look back at pictures from past events, they often trigger a whole cascade of related memories. As a football dad, I can tell you that one of your official responsibilities when your children play sports, in addition to being their agent, is being the photojournalist. When I searched football on my iPhone, in the photo library, I found over 5,000 results. I think I've been doing my job. The only word of caution I would give about photojournalism is this. Don't let it remove you from experiencing what is actually happening. I feel almost sick to my stomach sometimes when I go to a concert or an event like that, and I see so many people so focused on filming with their phones that I wonder if they even realize there's a live performer on stage in real life, right in front of them, not just appearing on their iPhone. I think there's a misguided sense of ownership as it relates to the use of phones for photos and video today. 
If you can capture it on your phone, it's yours. You own that moment. But being so obsessed with this, I think, actually takes you out of the moment and prevents you from really owning the moment through living it, internalizing it, and locking it into your memory. That's how you can truly own a moment. I think what matters just as much, if not more, is what you do with all those photos after the fact. Do they just get locked in your iPhone forever? Or do they go to Instagram to prove to the rest of the world how wonderful your life is? I think there are far better ways to engage with your photos, to bring them to life, and to integrate them more into your life, so you can appreciate them more frequently and trigger all of those great memories on a daily basis. In addition to being the designated cameraman, I'm also the family collage artist. I'm always printing photos and making collections to hang on display in our home. I'm up to about four or five walls in the house that are covered with Chad Hagel photo collage masterworks at this point. I'm also really big about creating photo collage holiday cards. Holiday cards are a big deal for me. Not only do I take several hours designing them each year on Shutterfly, but I also keep adding to the distribution list. The list just keeps growing and growing. Every Christmas season, our home turns into a card factory, churning out now over 600 cards at last count. I almost never take someone off my Christmas list. Once you land there, you're there for life. I picked up these two photo documentarian roles from my mother, Anna. She was always the one printing photos and displaying them around the house and sending out Christmas cards every year. I learned to appreciate these activities from her. I've taken them on somewhat as a legacy and a responsibility that I carry on behalf of the Hegel family, but I also truly enjoy it and I find it therapeutic. The bitter irony in all of this is that I learned of all these visual tools for memory mastery from my mother, and now she is the one at risk of losing all of those memories. My mother is suffering from early stages of dementia, but for now, although it creates numerous challenges in her day-to-day life dealing with even the most basic logistical, technological, or numerical matters, for now, she still has her memories. Really, they are the strongest thing she has right now. She holds on to them and shares her stories with everyone she meets. As she struggles more and more in the present, she clings more and more to those past memories. I truly don't know what she would do without them. Putting all else aside, I'll tell you what I think is the most important advice for making memories that you can appreciate and enjoy for the rest of your life. And this is where we come full circle to Buddha, and Patanjali. The best way to form meaningful, accessible, long-lasting memories is to be fully present in the most important moments of your life. I've identified in myself a failure to retain memories of certain events and a sense of disappointment that I cannot recall them clearly. Those moments are gone forever for me. And I can tell you that this frustrates the hell out of my wife also. I've realized that there have been important moments in my life that I failed to catalog in my mind because my mind was engaged in something else at the time. I was contemplating something that had happened or planning something that needed to be done or solved rather than just being present. As a result, I was in the wrong state of mind for forming vivid and durable memories. I've started the last few years to consciously work to overcome this weakness. When I arrive at an important event 
or an experience that I want to be sure to remember forever. I'm conscious about being conscious. I force myself to shut off the past, the future, and the outside world to experience what is happening in the here and now. I think about it as if I'm silencing the cell phone of my mind so I can be truly present in the experience. I did this twice recently. Once was the first time I visited Zermatt, Switzerland a few weeks ago and experienced the overwhelming beauty of the glacial mountain peaks. I'm confident I have locked in that beauty in a way I'll never forget. I can conjure the images of those mountains instantaneously and vividly. The second recent event was my son's high school graduation. I made sure to pay attention to the details of what was going on around me and to take note of every one of my senses and emotions in order to lock in the experience. I'm hopeful I did a good job of ensuring those memories will be with me forever. Here's the take-home message I have for you. Living in the present allows us to access the past in the future. I'll say it again. Living in the present allows us to access the past in the future. And before we conclude today, let me talk about one more way we can experience the past, sharing it with others. I find so much enjoyment in being able to recount my memories and experiences by sharing them all with you. Thank you for giving me that privilege. As I look back on the last seven months since Dadages was born, I already have some fond memories formed from my engagement with all of you and the friends and family, and from the amazing guests with whom I've shared the Dadages virtual studio. I want to return the favor to all of them and to all of you. Our social media team here at Datages has reached out to our previous guests to give them a chance to look back and to share with the friends and family. We've asked them to film a response to one of these two questions, and we will share their responses with all of you on Sunday, Father's Day, through our social media platforms. Here are the two questions. One, if you could say thank you to your father for one life lesson he taught you, what would it be? And two, what is one piece of advice that your father has taught you that you have passed on to your children? And now I invite all of you to join in the Father's Day Looking Back Fun. Please share your responses to these questions by responding this week to our social media posts. Datages is everywhere now. Instagram, at Datages Advice, YouTube.com slash at Datages Advice, TikTok, Datages Advice, and we have Datages pages on LinkedIn and Facebook too. We'd love to connect and celebrate with all of you in the Datages friends and family. Happy Father's Day. So now is the time on Datages where we honor the legacy of the bad dad joke, and I thought it fitting that I share a joke about memory loss. Listen, because I won't tell you again. I'm suffering from short-term memory loss. And one more thing, I'm suffering from short-term memory loss. So now is the time on Datages where we honor the legacy of the bad dad joke, and I thought it fitting that I'd share a joke about memory loss. Do you know what I hate the most about memory loss? I forgot. So now is the time on Datages where we honor the legacy of the bad dad joke, and I thought it fitting that I share a joke about memory loss. An elderly couple see a doctor about how to deal with their short-term memory loss. 
The doctor says to help them remember certain things, they should write it down on a piece of paper. One night, the couple is watching TV. When the husband starts walking to the kitchen, his wife asks, can you bring me some strawberries? Sure. Are you going to write it down so you don't forget? No, no, it's fine. Well, I also want some whipped cream. You should write it down so you'll remember. Don't worry, I've got it. I also want some chocolate syrup on top. You really should write it down, dear. I got it. Strawberries, whipped cream, and chocolate syrup. The wife sighs as her husband disappears in the kitchen. After about 15 minutes, the husband finally comes back carrying a plate of eggs, bacon, and sausage. The wife looks up at him and asks, where's my toast? Okay, I promise. I'm done now. And that's all we have for today, Dadage's friends and family. And just remember, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but, um, uh, gosh, damn, what was I saying? Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father, and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do, because I am doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.